0: All right, I want to share with you guys a part of one of my favorite books outside the Bible. It's a book called The Great Divorce, and it was written by C.S. Lewis decades ago. In the book The Great Divorce, which really has nothing to do with marriage, there are, let me give you the real short version here, men and women who individually meet up with either angels or glorified saints that they know. And these angels or saints, again, in one-on-one dialogues, identify the sin or the idol of the man or woman that prevents them from coming to Christ, and the angel or the saint tries to, begs with them to turn away from it and to turn to Christ. Here's one part of one chapter, one of the stories in the book. The angel says this, Would you like me to make him quiet? Quiet. A little bit of background, the man speaking to the angel has a big red lizard perched on his shoulders, kind of behind his neck, and the claws of the lizard are digging into the guy's shoulders. So the angel says this again, would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel as I now understood. The man says, of course I would. The angel says, then I will kill him taking a step forward. So the man says, hey, look out, you're burning me. Now please keep away. The angel says, don't you want him killed? This lizard on his shoulders, it represents lust, and this is the idol that keeps him from Christ. The angel says, don't you want him killed? The man says, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. The angel says, it's the only way. And the angel's burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? The man says, well, that's a further question. I'm I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? For the moment, I was just thinking about, well, maybe silencing it. Because up here, well, it's pretty damned embarrassing to have this lizard up here. So the angel says, may I kill it? And the man says, well, there's time to discuss that later. The angel says, there is no time. May I kill it? And the man says, please. I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, please, don't bother. And, and look, look at it. It's gone to sleep of its own accord. It'll be quiet now. I'm sure it'll be all right. But you know what? Thanks ever so much for trying to help. And the angel says again, may I kill it? And the man says, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think, in fact, the gradual process would be much better than killing it. And the angel says, I love this, the gradual process is of no use at all. Now, for the rest of that story, you got to get the book and read it. So... <laughs> To see how that chapter ends, go buy The Great Divorce or borrow it or check it out from a library. It's going to lead us to the first point in our bulletin. So here's your first fill in the blank. All of the battles that count are spiritual battles. If you've got a Bible, open up to the book of Ephesians. If you don't, verses will come up on the center screen. Ephesians is our New Testament book for today. And Ephesians talks a lot about battles. Now, we fight battles every day, all of us. Everyone in this room has some kind of battle that you're engaged in. We fight battles against depression. Uh, We, or probably more likely, people that are very close to us, fight battles with cancer. In fact, often the people that get cancer say, I'm going to fight it. We fight battles with unemployment, with the lack of a job and what that does to us emotionally. Uh, We fight battles with kids, with custody rights. For some of us in this church, we fight battles with our budgets. Man, we look at the government and think, how can you get that much in debt? And then many of us in this room look at our own monthly budget, and we go, wait a minute, there's more coming out than there is coming in. I'm slowly going into debt. Now, many of these battles overflow into the spiritual realm, and they become spiritual battles, but in and of themselves... Those aren't really spiritual battles. And for eternity's sake, those don't count. The ones that count are spiritual battles, like the man with the lizard, like those who are dead in Ephesians 2, like we used to be, those of us who are believers in this room, and have now been made alive. My name is Ron Giese. I'm the administrative pastor here at Desert Springs Church. And we are in the middle, actually well past the halfway point of listening to the New Testament in 90 days. We're at the beginning of August, our third month. And today, we will listen to the book of Ephesians, several chapters. So today's sermon is on Ephesians. Like, you know, if you've been coming through the summer, we're not hitting every book on Sunday morning, but we're doing a kind of survey of the New Testament to correspond with the books that you're listening to. So if you've just started visiting Desert Springs or attending, you can start in with us. You can start today. Go home, download some audios, and listen to several chapters in the book of Ephesians. You can pick this up at the Information Center. If you want to learn more about the program, go to our website. The second banner that scrolls up on top is this, God Speaks, We Listen. Click on that, and you'll get more information, including a schedule there online. Now, this morning, I'm going to try to kill two birds with one stone. We're going to learn about the letters of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, and we're going to learn about the book of Ephesians. So, back into our outline for today. What do we look for in letters? Well, we look for four things if we're reading or listening to the letters of the New Testament. First thing, look for a keyword in or after the opening. There might be two or three keywords. But in the opening of the letter, look for one or more keywords. So what I mean here is that in those first few verses, the author, in this case Paul, very often gives us a preview, by way of just maybe one word, of a topic he's going to spend a lot of time on in the book. So maybe the first step is, what is an opening? Well, an opening is fairly short, usually two or three verses. And in Paul's letters, in his openings, somewhere we have the two words, grace, and peace. Paul wrote 13 letters, 13 letters in the New Testament. Every one of them has the words grace and peace, usually in the phrase grace to you and peace. Talk about that a little bit later. Let's look at one example of an opening in Paul's letters before we look at Ephesians to show you what, how this works. I'm going to turn back to Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans has a fairly long opening at seven verses. It's the longest of the openings of Paul's letters. So here it is, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wow, there are three or four key words here, but I'm just going to summarize this because our... Book for today is not Romans. Carlos did that two weeks ago. So here's my summary of the opening. In this opening, Paul talks about who Jesus is and what he did. This reminds us of the answer to the bad news. What's the bad news? Paul's about to talk about it for three chapters, chapters one, two, three. The bad news is the pervasiveness and the penalty of our sin. So what's the answer to that? Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. So right away, Jesus at the beginning. There's a second topic Paul's going to talk about in the whole book that he gives a preview to here. And it's the idea of being missional, being on mission, being sent out. Uh, Twice in this passage, we've got the word apostle or apostleship. The only opening of Paul's letters in which that occurs two times. Well, what is an apostle? An apostle is... One who is sent. In fact, as a church, we're sending out Carlos to plant a church. And in two years, we'll send out two families to North America. And on a weekly basis, in small ways, we send out little teams or individuals to places to do local ministry. You'll also see the phrase, among all the nations, if you're looking down at a Bible on your lap. So, wow, that's missional along with this word, apostle. Apostle. And sure enough, this is what Romans is about. Two things. Who Jesus is and what he did, the gospel. And then second, that is such good news that second, we've got to take it to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. Finally, notice how that opening in Romans ends with the words, grace to you and peace. Now, by using these two words, this is so cool, Paul customizes his greeting. Up to the point of Paul, people in the Greek world People that aren't Jewish. In Paul's perspective, there's just two people groups. Jewish, people that aren't Jewish. And those two groups are different and often opposed to one another. Up to the point of Paul, people in the Greek world would open their letters with the Greek term charis. Which means grace. But only that word. So they would say something like grace to you. Uh, In fact, we have a member of our church, a young lady named Charis. She puts the accent on the second syllable, spelled with a ch, and that's the Greek word here. So her name means grace. Now, in Jewish letters, they opened their letters with the word shalom, so, but just that word. So in English, the equivalent would be something like, may peace be upon you. So do you see what Paul's doing here? He's bringing those two together, and what he's saying by grace to you and peace is a subtle message, but man, it's really not very subtle pretty direct. God is taking two people groups, very different, and making them into one people of God. One of the many things God does as a result of Christ's work on the cross. So now we're ready for Ephesians. So flip back, maybe you hopefully put some kind of little marker there. Let's look at the opening to the book of Ephesians. The opening in Ephesians is only two verses So, much shorter than Romans, and this is more characteristic of Paul's letters. Let me read these for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could note one or two things about this opening but remember what hopefully you wrote in your bulletin outline if you like taking notes. Look for keywords in or after the opening. And in Ephesians, I actually think it's the verse after the opening that we get the key power packed preview words of what the next few chapters are going to be about. So let's go one more verse. Verse 3. Opening's done. This is the beginning of the letter proper. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. A little pause there. That's the name of the second song we sang this morning. And it had that phrase repeated in it. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now there are, man, two or three key words here that tell us about what's going to come up later. You may notice the word Blessed, and it's variation blessing. A lot of this book, Ephesians, especially the first three chapters, are about the blessings that we have spiritually in Christ and how that realization should affect our everyday living. Talk more about that later. And these are spiritual blessings, they're not physical or material blessings. So they're not, you know, a better job, it's not more money, it's not the perfect spouse. Um, It's not the best vacation. These are spiritual blessings that are infinitely better than those things I just mentioned. And in Ephesians, the latter half of the book, chapters 4, 5, 6, apply what we learned in these first three chapters. In fact, uh, I was at the men's conference yesterday. Here's how one speaker worded it, and this is a fantastic quote. So if you like writing, write this down. We'll put it up on the center screen. Uh, He wasn't talking about Ephesians, but I think it fits the book perfectly. Here's what he said. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. So I'm guessing maybe half of you get that right now, and you're like, yeah, that clicks. And the other half are, hmm, that's interesting. Explain it a little more. So here's the thought. The decisive victory of all time, of the whole universe, is not future to us. It is not, for instance, the second coming of Christ, as glorious as that will be. The decisive victory of all time, the whole universe, is past tense. It was the first coming of Christ, namely the culmination of that first coming, his death, his resurrection how God planned all that out, God's grace, and what that produced. I've just summarized the first three chapters of Ephesians in just maybe a sentence. So, in fact, future victories, let's say the one or two we read about in the book of Revelation, future victories, they're just little aftermath victories. They're like cleanup operations. Because the decisive victory has already been fought and won on the cross. So here's here's what I think Paul wants us to think. I think Paul and ultimately God himself would want us to go home, listen to Ephesians. Really listen to it carefully. Understand especially the first three chapters. And then say something like this. Um. Wow. What Jesus did, what God the Father did in sending him, that's bigger, that's broader, that's deeper than I, than I imagined. And you know what? I thought it was pretty big last week and last month. I mean, I didn't have a small view of the cross last month. But after I've read through Ephesians, that's bigger than I thought. Paul would say, yeah, you're getting it. Now, repeat that process. So Paul would love thinking about us in December, four or five months from now. And in December, we're reading some other passage, you're listening to it, Old or New Testament, and that reminds us of Jesus and God's grace and what he produced through the cross. And in December, we're saying, um, wow. You know what? Last August, when I was listening to Ephesians, I thought what God did on the cross in Christ was big back then. It's bigger and deeper and broader than I thought. And then in December, the day after you realize that, whether you're at the workplace or in home, somebody hurts you, they offend you, they say something that hurts you, and here's your thought. You know, yesterday, I learned about the great sin and rebellion and ugliness in my heart that God forgave me of. How great God's grace is. You know what, this is so small, this thing that this person said that hurt me. I can certainly forgive them for that because of how God forgave me. And Paul would say, there it is. There, in short, is Christian living. Realize the cross and apply it. That's what Ephesians is all about. The first three chapters the cross, and what God did. He raised us up from dead to be alive, and then he created a church through that, a people of God. He's not just interested in individuals, but a body, a people of his own. And then chapters 4, 5, 6, how we apply that in our everyday living. Those two sections of Ephesians, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, are intricately related. So if we don't grasp Ephesians, the first three chapters, the struggles that we have in life, are going to be so, so much harder. If we do grasp the first three chapters of Ephesians, the struggles in life will be easier. They won't go away. They won't disappear. They won't be perhaps any less painful. But we've got a firm foundation in our salvation, our assurance, our hope in what Christ did, what he's doing now in our lives and what he plans to do with us in the future. Let's go back to Ephesians 1 verse 3 and pick up one more key word or phrase. So that first one was blessing. Let me read Ephesians 1-3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So aside from blessing, a second word, actually a phrase, and I've mentioned it already, is the phrase in Christ. This appears, either in Christ or some kind of variant like in him or in the Lord, 38 times in Ephesians. Ephesians is not that long of a book, is it? Now, I don't have ten minutes to take a little excursus on what in Christ means. It certainly relates to everything I've just mentioned. But if you'd like some, some extra study, go on our website, find Ryan's series on Philippians, which was done, wow, five, six years ago. But I think if you just search for Philippians under topic, you'd get it. His first sermon was an introduction to the book of Philippians and what he says in that first sermon is that some commentators say Philippians is, the main topic is about joy or rejoicing and certainly those terms appear a number of times in Philippians. What Ryan said, and I think he's right, is this, this same phrase in Christ occurs dozens of times in Philippians, not just Ephesians and that is Paul's main point in the book of Philippians. In fact, Joy or rejoicing are results of being in Christ. So if you'd rather have five or ten minutes explaining this expression, in Christ, let me refer you. It's good to use our website anyway. It's a great library of messages, seminars, sermons. That's the one you want to go to and listen to. So let me do a little summary here. We've learned about the letters of Paul that they have openings. The openings have words that preview what's going to come up in the letter. In Ephesians, this has to do with us being blessed, and us being in Christ. And those two go together. So before we go on to point two, let's do a little exercise together, kind of imprint this in our mind and on our hearts, that there are openings to Paul's letters. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put something up on the screens. And Drew actually did this at our last Lord's Supper, and I loved it. I'm going to read a question then I'll read the answer, but you read it with me. So all of us together, read the response to the question. All right, here's the question. How does Paul start his letters? Grace to you and peace. Let's do it again. How does Paul start his letters? Grace to you and peace. And now you know what that means. So now we're ready for the second thing we look at in letters. Number two. Look for the kind of letter that this is. So whatever letter you're in, whether they're by Paul or somebody else, what kind of letter is it? There are three kinds of letters I'm gonna go through. The first we're going to call a responsive letter. So your little A blank, you want the word responsive there. And I'll take a little pause here and tell you that um, Trent and I had the notes just right and somehow they came back from the printer messed up. So if you're taking notes and looking at it, this is about as far as you go, and then there's some blank lines. So you just have to fill in the rest of it, I guess. We're sorry about that. So A, responsive letters. A responsive letter is a letter written to address problems or questions that come up from a church. So this is the reason Paul writes. He's hearing about problems. He's getting barraged with questions. He says, man, I've got to respond. I've got to try to set things right here. An example of a responsive letter, we had this last week in our sermon, is 1 Corinthians. You might recall last week Carlos said, Corinth, wicked city. The church there, messed up, as only los can say. Um, And because of this, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. He wants to set things right. Galatians is another example of a responsive letter. Uh, With the church, our church is there, there's a big problem, and the problem was this. People were teaching, and some people were believing, that to be saved, you had to have faith in Jesus and obey the Old Testament law. You've got to do them both, and that's what's going to make you right with God. Paul says, no, no, no. Salvation is by faith alone. So Paul writes to respond to this problem in the churches of Galatia. One more quick example is 2 Thessalonians. I don't know if you've read that recently. We'll have it coming up pretty quick. I think this Wednesday we'll listen to it. This is what happened at the church at Thessalonica. The church there knew that Jesus was coming back. This would be a second coming. It was going to be physical, literal, visible. He would come back bodily for his church. They knew that. But... They thought and were convinced that was right around the corner, and we're talking like a few weeks or a month or two, not just the next thing on the church calendar. And because of this, a number of men in the church said, you know what, there's no reason to keep conducting my business. I'll sell it. And other guys said, you know what, I don't have to go work as a blue-collar worker. I'm going to quit tomorrow, hand in my time card, get my last check have a couple more meals before Jesus comes again. And Paul rebukes them in 2 Thessalonians. So he's writing to respond to their problem. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, some of you are leading an undisciplined life. And a few verses later, he says, you guys don't have jobs anymore. You're not providing for your families. So Paul's out to tell them, we still work and operate in this world up to the very day that Jesus comes back there's missional stuff to be done and we need to be about doing it. So, 2 Thessalonians, along with 1 Corinthians and Galatians, responsive letters. Letter B, here's where if you're taking notes, you may have to start kind of making your own letters or numbers. Second kind of letter among Paul's letters or the New Testament letters are teaching letters. Teaching letters present theology and how to apply it in a more organized manner. So the primary purpose of a teaching letter is, by definition, to teach, not to respond to a problem. Now for parents, man, you know what this is about, because this directly parallels kids. Uh, And we're not too far out of having our kids out of the nest that I've forgotten what that's like. So usually when we teach as parents, it's responsive teaching, isn't it? Some crisis happens, a glass vase gets broken because some kid is bouncing off the walls, and we've got to sit the kid down and say, here's how we conduct ourselves indoors. And here are the consequences for you breaking my vase. That's responsive teaching. But other times, maybe they're real rare, but other times, the kids are quiet, the home is peaceful, things are at rest. And you say, man, what a great opportunity. My kid is awake, he's not tired. He or she is awake and alert. What a great chance to sit down and teach them something about God, or about how to do homework, or if they're older, about how to handle money. So, a teaching time that is a teaching time proper, not just in response to some little crisis. Best example of a teaching letter in the Bible, well, in the New Testament, is the book of Romans. Man, you can't get better than that. If you read through Romans, it's very well organized. The first 11 chapters are all about the gospel. Starting at chapter 12, major transition point, the next few chapters, 12 through 16, is all about application. What do we do now that we understand the gospel? How do we relate to other people in the church? You'll read about that in chapter 12. How do we relate to people, individuals outside of the church, oh, even our enemies, how do we relate to them based on the gospel? And how do we relate to the government that is above us based on the gospel? Romans is very organized. Though I don't think Hebrews was written by Paul, Hebrews is another example, I think, of a teaching letter. Very organized. Hebrews is out to tell us the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And a few secondary questions. One of those secondary questions is, what in the world happens when some man or woman seems to come to Christ, but then they fall away? What's going on there? Well, the author of Hebrews is out to answer those in a pretty systematic way. And the third and final example of a teaching letter is the one we're in today, Ephesians. So to use Ephesians as an example, let me give you two marks of a teaching letter. Number one, it's more organized. So we'll see in a few minutes the structure of Ephesians, but it's, it's very clear that Paul is intentional about each chapter following the one before it. You can see the same thing in Romans. If you read through Romans, chapter 2 follows chapter 1. You're like, yeah, this naturally follows what we talked about in chapter 1. Then 3, it's like, yeah, that follows chapter 2 through the whole book. Same thing with Ephesians. So teaching letters are very organized. Second, teaching letters are, are going to dig deeper into specific areas of theology. So two examples from Romans, or sorry, Ephesians. Ephesians talks a lot about the Trinity. So I love why Trent put that in his prayer. In fact, some scholars call Ephesians the Trinitarian letter. In eight different passages, try to listen to this today. In eight different passages, we read about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and how those three work together. Another example of digging deep, kind of relates to the Trinity, is the Holy Spirit. Paul talks a lot about the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. In fact, the term spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, occurs 13 times in the book of Ephesians. To give you a little point of contrast, spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, only occurs once in Colossians and twice in Philippians. So there's a lot in Ephesians about the Holy Spirit. All right, so we've had responsive letters, teaching letters, third and final kind of letter, uh, letter C, encouraging letters. So... As a parent, maybe think of your kid. There's no crisis going on. You don't want a longer, more organized teaching time. You just want to pull him or her aside and encourage them with some words. Try to build them up with your words. We're going to look at an example of this next week. We're going to look at three letters next week. First and second, Timothy and Titus. Second Timothy, so one of those three, is an encouraging letter. Which simply means, again, Paul's not responding to problems that Timothy is asking about. He's not teaching Timothy in some long, organized manner. He just wants to encourage him. Another example of an encouraging letter is 1 Thessalonians. What I mentioned a few minutes ago was 2 Thessalonians, this problem of the guys dumping everything and just sitting on their dust waiting for Christ to come. 1 Thessalonians is a very encouraging letter. They haven't had that problem yet. So in the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians, you'll hear Paul... Encouraging them and commending them. Saying, wow, you guys are faithful. You're steadfast. You take joy in the gospel, even in the midst of persecution. So in 1 Thessalonians, you'll read words like encourage, comfort, exhort. All from Paul to that church. So let me try to encourage you this morning by saying, as you're listening to these books or reading them, You can do this. Try to identify what kind of letter it is. To finish up a letter of the New Testament, was it written in response? Was it organized teaching? Was it encouraging? And realize this, too, as a little final note, sometimes it doesn't fit completely into one of those three categories. I mentioned Hebrews, I think, is a teaching letter. It's also an encouraging letter. It's very evident that the audience are going through persecution and Paul wants to encourage them. So Hebrews is two of those three, not just one. All right. Number three, third thing to look for in New Testament letters. Look for a doctrine that leads to daily living. I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I can't avoid alliteration. It's We all love it. Ryan uses it a lot, so I've got to give you two words that start with D. Look for a doctrine that leads to daily living. Uh, You'll recall I said teaching letters are more organized. So this is what Paul does often in his teaching letters. The first section is doctrinal. And the second section is application or daily living. I've already mentioned the breakdown in Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, doctrinal, truth. Statements of fact, theology. Chapters 4, 5, 6. What do we do with that in our everyday living, our investments, our conversations, our relationships? So here's the transition point between these two in Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, Look at that word, therefore, that means based on what's come previous, the first three chapters. Based on that, I urge you to do something, and I urge you to walk. So here's our transitional verse. So Ephesians is split kind of right down the middle, kind of 50-50. Three chapters doctrine, three chapters daily living. Look at the word walk in that verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Walk is certainly a good word picture for application. I mean, it's something we do. And it's a word picture for how we we conduct ourselves. This word walk occurs five times in chapters 4, 5, 6. So in these chapters, Paul is going to tell us how to walk, how to conduct ourselves. If you look toward the end of Ephesians, there's a a final word or phrase in Ephesians chapter 6 that also has to do with daily living. And it's the phrase stand firm. You'll find it, I'm not going to put this up on the screens, but it's in chapter 6. And it occurs three times in verses 11 through 14. So, three times we read about standing firm. And this is the intro to the armor that we are to put on in the book of Ephesians at the very end of the letter. So, think of these three, three verbs alone walk, stand firm, a threefold stand firm, and put something on. Well, just one of 20 or 30 reasons why these three chapters, this is all about application, what we do based on that good news we read about in chapters one through three. So, in Paul's teaching letters, two big sections. Doctrine, in Ephesians one through three, application. The other thing to note in this idea of doctrine and daily living is that Paul doesn't just do this in big parts of his letters. He weaves in and out of this in verses and smaller sections. Here's one example. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what's the truth here? Christ gave himself up for the church. That's doctrine, that's truth, that's theology, that's a statement of fact. Okay, what's the daily living? What's the thing we're supposed to do? Well, there's a command here. Two husbands, love your wives. And are the two related? Well, by all means, yes. Paul says, here's how you love your wives and why you love your wives. Christ loved the church. Or as Ryan worded it months ago uh, when he was in Colossians, Ryan said, if you remember, and you were here, there are indicative statements, meaning statements of fact, theology, doctrine, and there are imperative statements in letters of the New Testament. And Paul weaves in and out of these both all the time. And the point is, here's how they're related. The imperatives, the commands, what you're supposed to do, those are based on the indicatives. So, this too you can do on your own. If you don't like marking up your Bible, maybe print up a letter of the New Testament. Take a highlighter or a pen and underline or circle or highlight commands when Paul says do this and you can do the same thing with indicatives, with statements, with theology, like Christ gave himself for the church. So, uh, We're ready for our final point. Before we do that, though, let's do another exercise here. I want you to get used to this idea that there is doctrine and then there's daily living. Application, what we do, commands, imperatives. And then in Ephesians, the transitional verse is chapter 4, verse 1. So, like we did before, I'll ask you a question. We'll all answer it. So, here's the question. What does Paul say we do when we understand salvation? We walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let's do it again. What does Paul say we do when we understand salvation? We walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Amen. That's that transitional part of Ephesians. We're ready for point number four. The fourth thing to look for in the letters of the New Testament. Last one. Look for church first, individual second. Individual meaning you and I. Look for church first, individual second. So you'll remember those words, grace to you and peace. Remember what those meant? Jew and Greek or Gentile brought together one people of God. All about the church. Even in Paul's opening, he's making that point. Now, let's imagine what an opening of Paul's letters might look like. I'm going to take some liberty here. If Paul is writing number one to an individual, and number two, let's pretend Paul is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's say he's more influenced by, or kind of a mix of influenced by God and influenced by the pop culture around us today in 2011. So, not written to churches to individuals, and a little bit of ungodly influence coming from the outside, here's what I think it would look like. I hope and pray that each of you is finding joy in the Lord, and that you know that God has great plans for each one of you, and that you are learning about what gift God has given you, and that you are finding fulfillment. So each of you, chart your own course, follow your dreams, and find yourself in Christ. Now, at first glance, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Um, I actually think it is. I think it doesn't sound too bad because we're so used to this kind of terminology from the world around us. It's all about you as an individual. Find what your gifting is, develop it, share it, be all that you can be. I mean, it's the typical graduation speech given to high schoolers, right? Do what you want to do. It's all about you. People call it expressive individualism. You're an individual, express yourself. Find who you are. Oh yeah, and do it in Christ. Let's be sure to tack that on to sound holy. I think there's a world of difference between this and what Paul says. Paul really does not say, find yourself. He says more of the opposite, lose yourself. Put the interests of others above yourself. Operate and have your being primarily in the church. The church is the body of Christ. Not a building. Don't think of building. Don't think programs. Think people that God is redeeming and sanctifying. And think people outside of the church that he wants in the church. Paul does not say that God has great plans for you. If by plans we mean more money, a better house, a better car, a better job, a better spouse, better health. In fact, the New Testament letters often say that what God has in store for us is trials. God does have great plans for his church, and he does have great plans for us, if by plans we mean he wants us to be Christ-like. That is a great supreme plan, and that is what God is after. All right, so let me get back into our last point. This letter, in fact, all letters, are much more about us in the church than us as individuals in our apartments or our homes, Let me give you just a few pieces of evidence as to why Ephesians is so much about the church. There are many word pictures in this book for the church. Here's how one author worded it. In Ephesians, the church is viewed biologically as a body. The church is viewed architecturally as a temple. The church is viewed in terms of personhood as a new person or a new humanity God is making a new humanity, and it's the church. The church is viewed sociologically in three different ways, as a family, as the bride of Christ, and as two hostile groups that have now been brought together, reconciled. And the church is viewed militaristically as an army that does battle. Just remember that quote, do we fight? For a victory, even though that victory is assured, do we fight for something in the future? No, we really fight from victory. What we understand happened on the cross. So we get all these word pictures. Here's a second and final little piece of evidence among a dozen about how Ephesians is really about the church. The word unity, Greek word for unity, when speaking of the church, actually the Greek word period, only occurs two times in the New Testament. Both of them are here in Ephesians. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 13. So you might say, well, Ron, two times, and that's not a huge piece of evidence that Ephesians is about the church, subset the unity of the church. Here's something else, though. The term one is used 14 times in this book, and it's in expressions like one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A lot of the book of Ephesians is about the church. So we might even word it this way. Instead of asking each other the question, did you do a quiet time today? Which is a good question, a valid question. We should be doing that. Jesus did that. The apostles did that. We as disciples are supposed to do that. Maybe ask a different question. Have you had your talk time today? Meaning, have you gotten together with another believer and not talked about the weather, sports, or the nation's debt? Have you done what Ephesians 5 tells us to do? Talk truth to one another. Have you had your talk time today? Have you had your church time today? So let's do one more responsive reading uh, to try to remember this idea in the letters, especially in Ephesians, that church first, individual second. I'll read the question again. Underlined part, we're all going to read together. What should I do? Get with others speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Man, that's what we're supposed to do. Based on Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, yes, we listen and we read God's word by ourselves, at home. But man, that prompts us, that drives us, that pushes us, that draws us to do these things. Speaking truth to one another. Submitting to one another. And being thankful, even verbally, publicly, in front of other people. And that's what the church is all about.